RadioInfluence.com. I know it's Super Bowl week, but that doesn't mean we can't talk some college football. It's Rush the Field with Scott Seidenberg and veteran coach, scout, and consultant Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. Fresh off his trip from the Senior Bowl. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, good to be back. I caught a I'm glad, uh, you know, we, we ended up doing, for people who don't know, we did the podcast a little bit earlier last week just a tad earlier Mm -hmm. we tape it um it's a good thing as i'd come off the east west practices then i go to the senior bowl and it is tends to happen to me i get sick i get i got uh, i got uh, a pretty bad case of the flu uh and i spent the, the senior bowl week with the flu it got worse well as our normal Tuesday night taping, uh, the voice started to go and go quickly to the point where Tuesday night, Wednesday, it was gone. So I was um, a lot of my <laughs> a lot of the scouting friends. I was I was pointing and nodding a lot the rest <laughs> of the week. I couldn't, I could, you know, it was just completely gone. So good thing we did a little earlier. The voice is not strong it doesn't last but well, certainly a lot stronger than it was towards the uh, the middle and the end of last week but got a lot of work done and you know excited to talk about uh, that week very productive week a lot of good players there and a lot of those guys will probably have 85 guys drafted uh, you know out of that uh, that group that we had there probably in the top four or five rounds. So a lot of good players there and can't wait to talk about them. You, you know what amazes me about about the Senior Bowl week? It's the, the day of the week where the kids get their measurables and then mm-hmm. certain people are like amazed. And I'm like, haven't you been watching college football all year? Like, what do you mean you didn't know that Daniel Jones was that big? Do you not watch this sport, people? Like, everyone seems to be amazed when the measurables come out, you know, because it's the pre-combine stuff, and you're starting to talk draft, and so you're getting the practice notes, you're getting the measurables on these on these kids, and it's like, ooh, I didn't know he was that tall, or ooh, I didn't know his hand was that big. It always amazes me when people go, over these kids measurables well that <clears throat> excuse me the uh, the uh, hand size is something that is a little bit of an unknown although you can see it you can see that it's big it's normal it's smaller than normal but you get the actual size that's interesting i think the actual height and weight i mean um we we, we strive for consistency we'll we'll redo everybody at the combine uh, but it is in general, you have a pretty good idea. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Daniel, Daniel's a big kid. He looks like uh, a six, five, two twenty quarterback. Yeah. I mean, come yeah. On. He, I mean, you know, it's just, you know, to me, it's like, yeah, if he's six, three and five eights, then that would surprise me. If he was six, six and five eights, that would surprise me. He looked in that, that uh, six, five range. And, um, yeah, I don't know if people know this, but you're, you're between an eighth and a quarter of an inch, um, taller at 9 a.m. than say 3 p.m. So, um, you know, your body settles and, and when, so you, you, you'll have a variance there. And then, of course, uh, you want to have the consistency of the environment. You know, when you when you measure a guy, you know, at, at one 
facility versus another, you know, what type of surface if you wanted that, if you're in a hard tartan surface versus one of those, um, you know, a lot of the weight rooms and whatnot, there's a little bit of give to it. That could be as much of an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch difference as well. So, and then you got the variance of, do you, do you measure them right? And do you going kind of quick and whatnot? So yeah, you, you should have a little bit of this, a little bit of that difference. I think the, the one thing though, is when you watch on tape, uh, and most a lot of people do this and, and watch our TV and any form of tape. A guy may not look that big to some to to the eye, and people just don't trust, nor should they, uh, media guide um, numbers yeah. uh, because those are those are quite a bit off and rounded off. But you know the other thing that people should know about this that we. The combine, the scouting combine, not the one every year, but the scouting organizations, Plesto and National, they have what we call underclassmen junior days, which basically like this spring when we get to spring practice, they'll go and look at for the class of 2020, they'll measure and time all these guys. So you know what a guy is, at least as of a year ago. So you shouldn't be that surprised if you really uh, uh, you're up on top of this. So you're correct on that. Was Daniel Jones, I know he won the MVP of the game. Uh, a lot of people were talking about him. A lot of people were talking about Drew Locke as well. Was Daniel Jones really <laughs> the guy who came away from this Senior Bowl week as the biggest winner in terms of NFL scouts and, and just the amount of media attention that he's been getting? No, I don't think so. Maybe media attention, but no, I don't think he was the biggest winner. I think that he, I think all the quarterbacks did a really good job. I thought Drew Locke was really good during the week. Daniel didn't have a particularly great practice week, but it, it wasn't bad either. So I think all the quarterbacks did a pretty good job. Maybe McSorley, as you might expect, didn't look as good. He's more of a gamer type of guy that, yeah. that physically is not very impressive. But um, I think in terms of the quarterback, I would probably say the guy that helped himself the most relative to his performance this year was probably Jared Stidham of Auburn. Uh, I thought he showed, he did a lot of things from an intangible and a learning standpoint that's quite a bit different than what he's asked to do at Auburn. So he was among the quarterbacks that did a, a really nice job and helped himself a great deal. But if I was looking at the quarterbacks, I'd probably say Drew Locke. Uh, probably had the best in terms of the most impressive in the interview sessions. Um, I think overall, I mean, I, I think a guy like Debo Samuel, the receiver from South Carolina, which a lot of people are very familiar with, uh, had a really good week. Uh, I think Penny Hart of Georgia State is was one of the clear winners, um, had a, just an outstanding week as well. Um, I, I thought Dax Raymond of, of Utah State had a really good week at tight end. I thought it was a really good week for guards. I think both the Boston College guards and both the Oklahoma guards were really good, but Powers is a little bit better. He's the one of the Oklahoma guards. Uh, and then Lindstrom is the better of the two Boston College guards. But Dalton Risner of Kansas State probably did a good a job as anybody. Uh, Chihuma Uduji of USC yeah. really did a pretty good job at tackle. I thought Kalen Saunders, who's a great story, as his wife gave birth, Hmm. Our girlfriend gave birth during the week, uh, but he had a good good week on and off the field because he he had a really good performance. Dylan Mack was good. I thought um, 
Charles Ilamaru of, of Texas did a really good job as well. Um, you know, those are some of the guys that I thought did did really well. Among some others, we've got a lot of more com- detailed complete lists on LandryFootball.com. We kind of break down everyone. But those guys did a good job. I thought, um, you know, some small college guys, as they always do, really help themselves. Andy Isabella of UMass is a really good slot receiver that I thought had a really good week. Nasir Adderley, a safety from Delaware, I thought was good. Nate Davis, a, a guard from Charlotte, uh, had a really good week that I was impressed with. Um, you know, um, uh, those guys really kind of – I to me really can help themselves more because of the fact that they really stood out performing very well against some of the better level of competition that um, that you see in the country as opposed to what they see on a week-to-week basis uh, at a small level. Did you mention Penny Hart, the, the wide receiver yes. from Georgia State? Yeah, I thought he was probably the, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but I don't want to say biggest winner. He, he's the guy that probably most people outside the scouting community, most fans, know less about but had the most impressive week, yeah. relatively speaking. I thought he was outstanding. I thought he had a he had an outstanding week. Um, a kid, Georgia State, right there in Atlanta. Well, what, what I thought about when I was watching him was because he's not exactly the biggest guy, and I don't know how he measures up to a Tyreek Hill, but I'm looking at him and I'm thinking that he is this – He's this speedster guy that can mm-hmm. be what Tyreek Hill is for Patrick Mahomes, where, you know, if you're not careful, he's blowing by you. And and, yeah. and he he's opening up over the top that can cause, you know, really wreak havoc on a defense. Yeah, he's he's definitely small. He's that uh, that five, eight quick explosive guy that that does that to to say he's as fast as the fastest quickest player in in uh, in the <laughs> in football is is a little bit unfair but it is definitely along those lines of a guy that can be a playmaker uh, i think you know some of the things we try to do with them in the return game um, is going to be important too to his success. But yeah, I, I think he can be a big time threat with a ball in his hands. And then, of course, you know you hope that for his sake, and obviously somebody that's going to take him has a really good plan for him because he is a situational type player like is Hill, but he can be a devastating player, yeah. you know, because of what he can do with the ball in his hands. Well, I, I'm sure a lot of people are waiting to see what happens. Uh, I know he's been hurt and have, hasn't really seen a lot of time on the field. And it's ironic that we're talking about the Washington Huskies tonight in our state of the, the program, but kind of like a John Ross type player. Yeah. Although, you know, when, when you think of Rossi, Rossi's um, a little bit, his body types a little bigger. Um, and he's, he's somebody that is a little, He's fast, um, maybe not quite as quick, okay. uh, but he's. But I think a, you know, no question, a really good player, no, no doubt about it. And but Rossi's a little bit, a little bit of a bigger type of guy in terms of his frame. Um, but it is isn't certainly he's been a disappointment because of the injuries, and that's what kind of held him back and why he dropped a little bit in the draft. And his ability to stay healthy is kind of kind of hurt his development to this point but uh, it's certainly a possibility now i don't think he's a guy you know certainly i would not take a five eight you know receiver that high i think that he's still going to be somebody you can get a little bit later in the draft um you know i'm talking about uh, penny there 
Yeah. Well, we'll get into the Washington Huskies coming up in our state of the program uh, coming up a little later on here in the episode. But I want to talk about some coaching hires, Chris, and we'll start with USC, who is it's, there. I want to be fair because I don't want to be too mean to the Trojans, but they're not having a good offseason. And it's not just losing Cliff Kingsbury, who they, they brought in as the offensive coordinator, who obviously leaves, takes a head coaching job at the NFL, but they're losing recruits. They did not have a good recruiting class. And, well, it appears they're trying to kind of capture that Texas Tech magic, staying in the Texas Tech family, hiring Graham Harrell, the former uh, Red Raider quarterback, Mm -hmm. to replace Cliff Kingsbury. He, of course, the offensive coordinator last season at North Texas, which puts up a ton of points per game. Yeah, and then and then you know they also lose Ivan Lewis, their strength coach, as they head into the offseason programs. That that's going on right now. And you talk about the most important uh, staff member on on your staff, your coaching staff. Uh, it's the strength coaches right there because they're the ones that are involved with them in the offseason. It just for all the reasons that you mentioned, you know, some question how Len Swan handled this whole situation and should Clay even keep the job. And now he's having to keep the job in the hottest seat maybe in the country. As you mentioned, Kingsbury comes and goes. You know, who you're going to hire at this point, all things considered, Graham Harrell, um, at least from that background of what they had kind of planned to do, makes some sense. Is it going to have the type of impact that's going to going to make this offense go to save Clay's job? I don't know that I can say that. And, and I think that you're dealing with some issues with people on the staff that some of them recruited players. Their recruiting has slipped quite a bit. Um, They normally are a finish strong in recruiting type of program, and they've lost a number of key guys that have decommitted from them. So their recruiting class, class, we'll see how they're able to rally here with just a couple of weeks left, but it's not looking real good for them, you know, short term. And then with the recruiting class that may not be up to snuff, you know, potentially it could have an effect uh, beyond the next couple of seasons. So it's a, it's a, it's been uh, about as tough of an off season as you can have for USC when you consider the season, and then the decisions that they needed to make, and maybe some they didn't make as well as they probably could have or should have. And now it's it's really kind of uh, they're going to have to rally. They're going to have to have some good things happen, and you know, hopefully, you know, things will work out for them. But it doesn't look very good, quite frankly. Why? Why Graham Harrell over Jed Fish, who had been rumored to get that job? Well, I think they, you know. I, I think and Jed pretty- Fish, uh, for, for those who don't know, is a currently an assistant with Sean McVay and the Rams. Formerly, uh, he was at UCLA before. Well, a couple of things about it is I don't know while there's rumors of that. I don't know that Jed was coming. I mean, I okay. think that there is some talk about, you know, Jed and, and, you know, again, I think it's a tough. First of all, the timing's not good. And I think you you needed to look into some NFL situations. But Jed, I think, can still get a job. I don't know. I'm not. A hundred percent certain that he turned him down. I don't want to give that indication because that would be inaccurate, or at least to my knowledge, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not certain about that. However, um, you know, it's not an easy fill at this stage because there's a lot, a lot of candidates you can go and get somebody off another college program because it is USC. However, 
you're dealing, I hate to say it, with a lame duck situation. So you're probably going to want a three-year deal if you're a Jed Finch. And I'm not sure that they were willing to do that. Um, you know, and, and maybe that's why that didn't work out. I, I'm speculating there. Now, in terms of the fit for Graham, I think because Graham comes from that Texas Tech system, which they were trying to put in play with Cliff. Mm-hmm. So I think the the preliminary work that they did, albeit Cliff wasn't there very long, some of the concepts and ideas, they felt like, well, we're not going to switch from that. We're going to go with what our plan was. We're just going to do it. We got to find somebody that can do it um, and kind of have some of the same goals and concepts and ideas that Cliff and that would be that would be Graham. So Graham understands that system. So what it tells me with the hire is a that's what's the direction they've decided to go when they made the move to cliff and then now that cliff's gone they tried to find someone in that same lineage that you know mike leach type you know background and i don't know that that's a great fit but but if you're gonna go with cliff then they that's the reason why i think they ultimately um went with graham because of that and 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 if they did choose him over jed finch if that's the direction that they went that would be the reason why they did it right or wrong that's the reason why let's check in on some other coaching news and we'll go to the big 12 where oklahoma state has put a focus on offense and what the big 12 and putting up points no that's not something you hear every day chris (laughs) right uh princeton sean gleason takes over as the new oc for the cowboys Uh, he led princeton's offense to the number two rank in FCS in scoring in 2017, 470 points, an Ivy League record in 2018. So yeah, I think the Big 12, they're going to get another high-scoring offense with this offense run by Gleason. Yeah, Mike Gundy's has really had some success and, and you know, nabbing guys and particularly with Jurovic and guys that he's brought in before that have had some backgrounds in the past in some of the small-level schools, some of the Ivy Leagues even. He's been able to do that, and, and it is a very intriguing philosophy that Mike has because um, – he looks at places like that, and it is it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Um, they're not – the Ivy League's not a scholarship-level program. So, in essence, you are finding creative ways to create points. And Oklahoma State's been a program that offensively has been cr- very creative, very aggressive. And Mike is a good offensive coach himself. So, he has a real good feel for what he wants, but also can kind of – teach and let a guy get adjusted and that transition sometimes takes a year so i don't know if it'll be a booming success right away but i think it eventually will as you mentioned uh sean sean gleason's done a really good job uh, at princeton and they put up a lot of points and that's not something that you see routinely um in, in the ivy league and they as you mentioned uh, 47 points a game is pretty good there so uh and, and it's how they do it too so it's a really Really good move for them, um, I think. But that's the type of guy that Mike is is tabbed here the past, uh, you know, two or three times he's had to make the move. Was was Graham Harrell ever in the mix there? 
No, uh, no, it, 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 not to my knowledge. No, I think that it's a little bit of a different style in what Gundy runs. And, and I think Gundy wants a young, bright guy that can kind of learn his system. That's kind of the way he approaches it. So that's why he's kind of going that direction. Right, and finally, let's talk about LSU, who brings in Joe Brady to oversee the passing game. So he's going to be the passing game coordinator and I guess the receivers coach as well for Ed Orgeron. Yeah, Jerry Sullivan, who I coached with at LSU back in the 80s, it brought Jerry back, and Jerry's one of the really good receiver coaches. He's he's um, 72, I believe, and he retired and was not really an effective recruiter, and he was the passing game coordinator as well. Um, you know, I think that they needed to go younger. First of all, they needed a more apt recruiter. And I think they needed someone that could help a little bit divert more, diversify the offense, um, you know, bring some of the ideas that have that have come from a pro style system, which they still like to do, but yet has some working understanding of RPOs and can help and create uh, a little bit more in the passing game. The key is going to be, um, you know, how much involvement will they give him? Steve Insminger will still be the offense coordinator, the play caller, the designer and run everything. But Joe, I think, is a bright guy that, again, has done a good job. He was at Penn State and the recruiter and did a really good job and uh, worked with Joe Moorhead and, and, um, and Josh Gaddis and those crew uh, over there. But he's someone that uh, I think can help uh, this LSU passing game if they look to try to take that next step, if they're willing to be a little bit more aggressive. He did a good job for um, for the staff there, uh, Joe Lombardi and, uh, the, and the other guys on, um, on Sean Payton's staff with the Saints. So I think it's a pretty good move with them. Um, I think his background at Penn State – with helping with some of the RPO concepts will really help him. And the fact that obviously he's got that college background as a recruiter too, will only help that. That's, that's something that they really need. And quite frankly, as much as Jerry Sullivan is as good as there is at teaching route running, you know, the teaching pro route passing trees in the NFL is great you know, coaching college kids that, but if it takes that long to get good young talent on the field and running good routes, then it's not working all that well. And that, that was something that I think they needed to improve upon at LSU. And can't go wrong going down the Sean Payton coaching tree. Mm-mm. That's for sure. All right, Chris, let's get into this week's state of the program. What's going on at your favorite school? This is state of the program on rush the field. <laughs> And this week's team, we take a look at Chris Peterson's Washington Huskies, the leaders of the Pac-12, Chris. And when you look at the purple and the gold of the Washington Huskies, you just think cold weather. You think Pac-12 North. You think Rose Bowls. You think about, you know, NFL potential. And certainly you think about Dubs and Harry the Husky as well. Yeah, no question. As they say, go West, young man. And that's what we're going today. And, you know, this Washington program is got a lot more history to it than I people than people think and know. It's um, they've won 17 conference championships, seven Rose Bowls, um, you know, depending upon how you want to categorize in the history of national championships. Um, they had one of the best teams, I think, if you're ranking 
college football teams of all time and I don't know making a top 20 and I haven't done it lately and ranked them but I would say comfortably that the 91 uh, team that Don James had was one of the top I don't know 15 20 best teams certainly in history and we'll go over that a little bit but there there were a few other teams including you know a couple of others that claimed that you know had a national title by some poll or, or other but uh, it is it is a you know one of the top 20 all-time winning by record and by percentages uh, it is um that 12 unbeaten seasons and they're one of the four charter members of the pac-12 in fact, it was the PCC, the Pacific Coast Conference. So it was California and Washington are the, the only two that were the original members of what we know as the Pac-12. And they had 27 consecutive non-losing seasons. That's the most of any of the Pac-12, 14th longest string um, in in the uh, Division One a And I looked at it as the long history of quarterbacks that have played there have been so successful. Warren Moon Warren was Moon, the first really good one. When you say Washington and quarterbacks, and and we could talk about some guys that come after him, but the first guy that comes to mind is Warren Moon. He's got to be the greatest quarterback to come out of that program. Well, he certainly, uh, I think, uh, you know, was really, really good. You know, as a college player, uh, probably a guy like Steve Pelour and Marquise Tuiasasopo had comparable careers. But Warren Moon was phenomenal. In 1976, he was really good. But 14 of their last 19 quarterbacks who've led the team in passing for at least one season – 14 of the 19 have gone on to play in the NFL. That's a phenomenal wow. yeah. lineage of what they've had there. And uh, you go back into the history and the early history, you know, when they first started football, kind of a uh, – we talked about this before, and we talked when we talked about Syracuse's program in our first segment, you know, college football started in the Northeast. So in the early stages, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, not really good college football in the West Coast. And so there was like 10 different head coaches in the first 18 seasons. And in most of the years between like, you know, late 1800s, 1900s, they only play like six, eight games a year. Well, who are they playing then, against? They're playing against you know, USC and, and they're playing against what, Oregon? There's not, there weren't not, many not schools many playing football. No, there was like Washington State College. And, yeah. you know, there's just not a lot of people. That's that's kind of what I meant by, you know, there's just not a lot of programs out west. Then then that's what they started to recruit some guys like Pop Warner was recruited from Pitt to go to Stanford. And the great Howard Jones, who really started the first successful USC programs in the 30s, he, he was in the early 1900s, was a great coach at Yale. They, they recruited them out west and then so you, you started to have guys like that then you start to see some of the success of the west but then you get into um the, uh, the first good coach they had got into the uh, you know 1908 to 1920 range you had gil doby who led them to the pacific coast conference title in 1916 and outside of don james who we're going to talk about he's probably was the best coach that they had um he was outstanding had really good success and you know kind of ushered the early stages of the program and then you had uh uh, a couple of coaches that came in as they moved into uh, the Husky Stadium, and uh, they they were actually called 
the Sun Dodgers uh, in the early <laughs> 1900s into 1922. Then they decided to become the Huskies from 1923 on. Then they get into the uh, the Coach Bagshaw era in the, the late uh, 1920s and early, really the 1920s. He was 63, 22, and 6 in uh, the school's first two Rose Bowl birds. They had the 14-14 tie against Navy in the great 24 Rose Bowl. And then that 20-19 loss to Alabama in the 26 Rose Bowl, um, but but he, he started to really have success. And then they brought in James Phelan in 1930. He was a Notre Dame graduate, and he did a good job. He guided the Huskies to 65 and 37, an eight record over 12 seasons. His 36 team was really good, won the fourth PCC title. They lost in the Rose Bowl to Pitt 21-0, though. And again, that was an era where the East Coast teams still in particular were very good. Then you get into that era after him, after the war, after Pearl Harbor and the war. You had uh, Ralph Welsh, who played at Purdue under James Phelan, and he, he, he was an assistant for Phelan. He comes in. He takes over. Uh, from assistant coach becomes a head coach um and he, he you know his record was pretty average but again it was kind of war it was world wartime football which a lot of players were you know going to the war so at a 27 and 20 record and um they but they did go in 1943 they went to the third rose bowl but uh, they lost to um to to USC that year, twenty nine nothing. They played them in the Rose Bowl, and then Howard O'Dell joined. Then John Churchburg, a Washington player, became. And then the guy that maybe people may be most familiar with from another place came in, and it was Daryl Royal, the great Texas Daryl Royal. Yep. But he came from Mississippi State. Daryl Royal played at Oklahoma, his football under Bud Wilkerson, and worked as an assistant in a number of different places, but went to Mississippi State after being an assistant at NC State and a couple of other places and went to the Canadian Football League and took the coach two years at Mississippi State. Then he gets the job at Washington, only spends one year there, but it was enough to bring him over – uh, to get the Texas job, and then he began. Ouch! To build, you know the the, the Texas. That's like job, that's like Belichick know. and the Jets, except it lasted only one day. At least Dow Royal coached for a year, but coach, you had a coach. coach you had one of the greatest college football coaches of all time. He coached for a year and then leaves and becomes the legend that he became at Texas to the point where yes, Texas plays at Daryl K. Royal Memorial Stadium. Yeah, and of course, it was understandable in that, you know, a lot of guys like that that were from certain parts of the country like to coach there, but often to make their upward movement into the coaching profession had to go into different parts. So like, you know, when 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 Coach Royal went to Mississippi State, it was still in the South. Um, he had a little bit of a, a falling out there at State, and that's why he went to Washington. But it, it was kind of known that he wasn't probably going to be there long if he was going to have success, but certainly not one year. But the chance to go to Texas, I mean, you yeah, know, you don't pass Oklahoma, that up. Yeah. it was an Oklahoma guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Oklahoma job wasn't open any in that, at that era. But, you know, to, to go to Texas, that 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 was a big deal. Jim Owens comes in. Um, he was an assistant, a well-regarded assistant for Bear Bryant at Kentucky and then Texas A&M. And then, um, you know, Bear Bryant recommended him highly. 
and he did a good job. I mean, he had a he had a pretty solid record there. Did a pretty good job. Um, you know, initially it was a little bit of a struggle, but he led his 59, 60, and 63 teams to conference championships, and he went to a 60 Rose Bowl, which is one of the best teams that that school's ever had. And then it was actually voted in 1960 a national championship by one of the what I would call off-brand polls, the Helms poll, because Minnesota actually won it that year. Uh, but it was a, a national title of some degree. He goes on to become the the athletic director as well as the head coach uh, from 60 to 69. Um, and then uh, he resigned as the head coach in se- after the 74 season, then hired – Don James, yep. which ended up being the best coach in school's history, hired him from Kent State, where he coached a lot of good players. He was the coach at Kent State at that time um, in an era that's uh, uh, that, that became kind of known for some of the, the, the you know, the, the whole assassination and, the, and, and the, that, that happened on campus by by military and whatnot. And uh, two of his players on that team were Gary Pinko and Nick Saban at Kent State and um, did a really good job there. Goes to Washington. He spends 18 years there, four Rose Bowl wins, won an Orange Bowl. Um, that 91 team, as I mentioned, finished with a perfect 12 0 season. They won the national title. They shared the title with Miami that year. Yes. I thought they were a little bit better than Miami. And that's saying an awful lot. Although you can look talent for talent and say that um you know miami might have been as good but they won 22 consecutive games from 1990 to 1992 so this was um this was a, a really great era here once he got root of his his program and he was very detailed very organized and i can tell you that he's somebody that nick saban credits an awful lot with his attention to detail he ended up with a 153 57 and two record he won coach of the year honors in 77 and 84 and 91 um unbelievable coach here some off the field issues with ncaa caused him stepping down and resigning a little bit with uh, not it, it was the Pac-12 that got involved and had some issues more than the NCAA did but he ended up stepping down and then that's where the program began to slip a little bit because as I mentioned they had some really great players uh, during his era then Jim Lambright was promoted from defensive coordinator to head coach um, that lasted for a little bit you know 44-25-1 he was fired they had a new athletic director Barbara Hedges that came in uh, lady goes and was enamored with this young coach at Colorado by the name of New Heisel so he hires him uh, they hire she hires him away from Colorado Colorado and did a pretty good job. Of course, the program had a lot of talent and Rick did a pretty good job, 33-16. But as the longer he got there, the worse the program got, just like when he inherited the Colorado program. They did go to Rose Bowl and beat Purdue in 2001. Um, You know, he also had, you know, some off the field issues did Rick with the NCAA and that led to his issues. Then it 
begin a, a spiral. Tyrone Willingham comes in after his Stanford and Notre Dame. Remember, Tyrone had a really good success at Stanford, landed him a Notre Dame opportunity mm-hmm. um, at the George O'Leary mess took place there. And he got fired at Notre Dame, and some people thought maybe prematurely, didn't do a very good job, goes to Washington, and quite frankly was just awful. I mean, he was 11-37. and 37. Uh, It's the worst winning percentage of any coach in Washington football history. They were um, winless after 0-12. I mentioned the fact that they've had kind of the longest string of a non-losing season. They, they, they never had losing seasons there, even when they weren't good. Yeah. They, they, you know, Tyrone, it was the worst era. Then they bring in Steve Sarkeesian, who was the USC offensive coordinator um, for Pete Carroll. And Steve did a good job. And his record overall was 34-29. But again, over that five seasons, you got to remember, he took over a program that was really poor. He started to recruit pretty well. Uh, he never won more than eight games in a year, but only had one losing season, which relevant. is saying a lot, considering the fact that they were Owen, he inherited an 0-12 program. Yeah, they were relevant, though. When, when they yes. hired Steve Sarkeesian, they became relevant again. When Tyrone Willingham, when Tyrone Willingham was there, they were a dumpster fire. That's right. No, there's no question about it. And Sark ended up uh, obviously leaving to go to USC, and he's the only coach other than Darrell Royal to leave voluntarily. Everybody else either resigned or, you know, stepped aside, um, you know, or were pushed out. So um, then we know that that the the Sark era, you know, as he moved to USC, we know the, the situation there. But I thought they made one of the best hires. And when I think of Fitz, in terms of a college program and a coach, uh, one of the best fits in terms of a great coach in a, in a place that he's comfortable, that he likes, a geographical area, recruiting area that he's familiar with, uh, I think Chris Peterson in Washington's one of the best fits. And he was hired in 2013 and, of course, did a great job at Boise State for years and had – number of opportunities to look around the country but you know he's known for those of us that know chris that there are two jobs that he really coveted that he would probably leave boise state for washington was one and oregon was the other and uh he you know listen i mean they go to the the conference uh, the college football playoffs in 2016 um so he's got a contract that extended through 2023 now he makes close to five million dollars a year um, you know, it's 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 a really, really good uh, program that I think is on the rise from a recruiting standpoint, from a development standpoint. You know, but when I think, you know, the program, I think of the fact that it is in my view, uh, Scott, outside of USC, it has more potential. And when you look at big city, Seattle, and you look at the potential there, what uh, the success and the heritage I think it's the second has the second best potential in the the, the Pac-12. Um, I think it has more going for it than Oregon. Oregon's built the facilities, and they did what they needed to do because they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. So they built a little city around the campus. Washington's got a little bit more going for it. I know UCLA people think is a is a hidden gem because it's in uh, Los Angeles, but it's always going to be second to USC in terms of popularity it may not you know when Terry Downey who was there and USC wasn't doing well then then certainly you know UCLA was was the better of the two programs but 
that's that's going to be the exception rather than the rule because USC is always going to be king. So when I look back, I think of the, the great 1960 season. I think of the 84 season that was really good. I remember a couple of things that jump out at me. I don't know if people remember the Sooner Schooner incident. They played, they went into Oklahoma and played the number two Sooners and um, they took the lead and in, in the, <laughs> the Sooner Schooner was the first time that Sooner Schooner came out on the field <laughs> and tumbled and they got a penalty and it was a big deal there and, um, you know, in the Orange Bowl there that they played and uh, it was a 92 team that was really, really good that, that looked like one of those teams that, that was kind of I, you know, he could make the case that year they were one of the best teams in the country. But it was one of those years where in the pre-BCS era, BYU out of the whack went 13-0 and and won the national championship, which people don't know is that Washington had an opportunity to play BYU in the Holiday Bowl, and they turned it down to go to a more lucrative bowl in the Orange Bowl and to play Oklahoma, the number two team. And so it just gives you an idea how it went. Uh, had they done that, maybe they would have been in that position to beat BYU, and then you might have had them in a position, even with a two-loss, open up the door for a couple of other people. But not many people know that they had that opportunity to play BYU. And BYU, of course, played a 6-5 and five Michigan team in the Holiday Bowl and won the national title. Now, can you imagine on your sports talk show, you know, talking <laughs> about, you know, how how BYU wins the national title 13-0 because they beat a 6-5 and five Michigan team, you have a field day on that as everybody would have at that time but you know in 84 you didn't have much of that but 90 season was great 91 season was great i think of some great players i think of you know a, a, a lot of guys historically that were were great in the first one that i can kind of remember is or at least familiar with this Hugh McElhenney. he's one of the you know, great players. He finished really high in the Heisman Trophy winner. But, you know, you're talking about a consensus All-American, college Hall of Famer, NFL Hall of Famer, one of the really great players, one of the great running backs. If you get a chance to watch old NFL films, you'll see Hugh, Hugh McElhenney uh, and the Niners and, and, and the in the great, um, great history. In, in, in fact, when uh, um, Don James got the job, he got the uniforms. He was the one that said, we're going to go with the gold kind of San Francisco 49er look helmets mm-hmm. with the purple W to kind of modify it because then the McElhenney was doing it in the Niners in those days. And, and he was a Washington guy. And that's kind of how it was done, kind of how they, they started their their look of their uniforms, kind of like Hayden Fry did at Iowa with the Pittsburgh Steeler look. They, they didn't always look that way at Iowa. They had a little bit more of an old gold and old more of a look. So I think of him, I think of the great Warren Moon, who we've talked about yep. in the 1970s. Um, uh, but I think of Steve, Steve Edmond, who I thought was the best player in the 91 draft at, at defensive tackle. Great Lincoln Kennedy, who became a good friend with me, did a bunch of radio with him. Yep. Great offensive tackle there. Um, just just a, a lot Corey of great Dillon. players. I'm sorry? Corey Dillon, Mark Corey, Brunel. 
Corey Dillon. Mark Brunel was the quarterback on that team uh, that won the Heisman Trophy. Uh, Steve Pallour was probably as good a quarterback as they've had there. Uh, Napoleon Kaufman was a great player. Um, um, you know, uh, 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 Dave Hoffman, uh, Nesby Glasgow, one of the great cornerbacks in the league, Ray Horton, Vesty Jackson, Lawyer Malloy, uh, really, really good. One. Um, uh, you know, I think um, I'm, I'm, uh, the Nelson kid, Chuck Nelson, was one of the great college kickers of all time. I mean, mm-hmm. just unbelievable history and unbelievable record. Um, but, you know, when you think about great, uh, great players, they've had them through their history. And um, Don Heinrich was a was a really good quarterback in in the uh, the early 50s. And, you know, just a good group. And then obviously the history with um, with Don James is is obviously a great one. The, the great Apple Cup games, I tell folks, that uh, I can remember going to an Apple Cup game and uh, heading to uh, Pullman, Washington one year to watch Washington, Washington State. And I'm going to go and watch uh, um, uh, Drew Bledsoe. And I got driving through Montana in the snow and trying <laughs> to get to the game. And what was really a four-hour drive ended up being a 12-hour drive. But uh, some really good guys, Jim Owens, is going to forever be known as a, a guy that kind of set the program on its on its um, you know on its feet after Daryl Royal left him after one year, and he was not only the head coach and athletic director, but then bumped up full time to athletic director and hired Don James. So I think right now their future um, is the best it's been since Don James. They've got their best coach that if he stays there for a long time, I don't know what the record will say in this day and age of you got to go to the playoffs or you didn't have a good year type of attitude. But, um, I think that they've got as talented a coach as they've ever had, uh, right now in Chris Peterson. I think he's a phenomenal coach. I think he develops players very well. I think he has really good defensive concepts. His teams are so well prepared, so well coached. Um, I think that if they can get his offense going, then this team has a chance to be uh, a perennial power. And certainly until USC figures out what they're doing, um, I think Washington right now is kind of supplanted Stanford as the program in the Pac-12, kind of on a year-in-year-out basis in terms of a program. Now, you may have a little bit of a down year. This past year was one, but I think in terms of maybe recruiting a little bit better than they have historically uh, and getting the talent level maybe kind of to the level of where Don James had it with those early 90 teams, if you get Chris Peterson can get his type of guys with that type of talent, you're talking about a program that can compete nationally nationally with the big boys. So let's take a look at where they go here in 2019, because it's a huge transition for Chris Mm -hmm. Peterson now, because Jacob Eason and Miles Gaston are gone. And it's very rare that you have guys that stay for four years in college football in 2018 and 2019, Chris. But these two guys were a staple of this Husky team for a long time. Now they're gone, but Jacob Eason's eligible to play now. 
He transferred yes. from Georgia. He sat out last year. This was the plan all along. Jake Browning leaves, and now Jacob Eason takes over. So to say that the offense is in good hands at the quarterback position, I think would be an understatement because this kid is a local kid, first of all. So you know the fans there are already drooling over him. And he's a former five-star recruit. So the offense is going to be in great hands with Jacob Eason. Can this program take a step forward behind Behind him in 2019. Well, I think he can. I think Jacob is a really talented guy. I think he's someone that, you know, we'll see how he develops. But I absolutely think that he can be that type of a, of, of a quarterback for them. Um, you know, if you look at it, they've got a kid from Danville, California, too, Jake Hayner, that's really good, that they like, too. So the, I think that they coach it very well, and I think Eason gives them the the arm talent, the ability to make plays physically. Uh, if he'll be the type of guy that they, they think he can be physically, and if he can, can learn and develop, you know, one thing about Chris, he's going to coach those guys hard. They're going to be disciplined. They're going to make good decisions. And so that's going to determine whether he gets the job and how long he keeps it and how effective he is because they're gonna they're going to run the football they're gonna play good defense and they're gonna need you know good smart play from the quarterback position so I think that that Eason can be an absolute uh, big time player for him I think they've got a lot of talent I mean I I think there's got a lot of talent coming back that I think can help them uh they uh for the most part, uh, started a couple of uh, seniors on the on the offensive line, but they've got a, a, a couple of good, particularly a good uh, redshirt freshman guard that I like a bunch, um, and, and some other playmakers that I think can be good players, good young receivers that can help them, and I think defensively uh, are always well coached, very physical. So I think it's the future is very very good immediately, and we'll see though what does that really mean in terms of um, you know being. In the top upper tier of the Pac-12, does that put you into the playoffs? Well, we've seen for the past couple of years, the Pac-12 hasn't had a national caliber type mm-hmm. team. That was the case again this year. We saw them in the early part of the season uh, not play poorly, but get beat by Auburn. And I thought it hurt them a little bit. And they weren't quite as explosive on offense. Uh, but yet they were still very difficult week in and week out to play because they're so well coached. And that was our state of the program on the Washington Huskies. Next week, we get into a team that had a very surprising 2018, the Kentucky Wildcats. No, we're not talking about John Calipari. We're not talking about basketball. We're talking about the Kentucky Wildcat football program coming up on next week's episode. Chris, I know it's a busy time at LandryFootball.com so when we go to the website and we try to learn what NFL teams and college programs already know by joining LandryFootball.com what are we going to find this week? Well, uh, obviously we're we're focusing on a lot of things right now. We've got the Super Bowl coming up so we're going to have a lot of different you know angles to the Super Bowl and the X's and O part of that but we're really involved obviously in recruiting 
recruiting and getting that the, the table set for the next couple of weeks on recruiting and uh, spring ball. Arizona State's going to be the first college program to start their spring practice uh, in the FBS. So we'll keep everybody up to date on what's going on there. All the transfers, all the spring practice news uh, coming up. But then, of course, for fans that also are, are pro football fans, it's such a big offseason in pro football with free agency, the draft. So the draft is a way I never quite know how a lot of college fans really get into the draft from the college angle. And then, you know, some some are also pro football fans. So in a nutshell, that's what we do in the offseason. And right now in particular, in that order, Super Bowl free agency draft second wave of recruiting and then the daily news and notes where we kind of keep everybody up to date on any of the coaching maneuverings any of the transfer uh news as well as the the news going around the nfl where teams are re-signing players or redoing contracts or making decisions pre uh league year starting there so it is by far busier uh, once the football playing season stops and it's already stopped in college and of course it's ending this weekend in uh, the NFL the news is busier because you have more moving parts when it's just football season it's just all ball it's just about games there's so many moving parts uh, and we do our best we can to keep every you up to date out there on everything that's going on around uh, the college football and the NFL scene and don't forget to catch my other podcast, the Landry Football Podcast, every Tuesday and Thursday. And, of course, you can catch this podcast with my, Scott and myself on Wednesdays. And then get our War Room newsletter. Oh, if, you're not, if you're not subscribed to that, you have to go to LandryFootball.com, type in your email address, and get these War Room newsletters. They're free. And but look, you're going to want to subscribe, but these are free. You get the War Room newsletters every single week, and it's stuff that is not available for publication. I love it when I get the War Room email emails because it's like getting a fresh take on what's going on and then i can go to landryfootball.com and find the rest of the info absolutely so and we got our discount we got our postseason uh savings uh, special there so you can take advantage of that so please uh take the opportunity to do so don't forget follow chris on twitter at landry football follow me on twitter at scott's on air rush the field with me scott seidenberg and chris landry can be found on apple podcasts stitcher TuneIn radio google play and radioinfluence.com before we go chris who you got in the super bowl well, I, I'm going to go with the Patriots in a close one. I think that's where I'm going to go with it. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of different breakdowns and going into maybe why on the website. But I think this, I think if it's a close game, the Patriots will win. I think if the Rams can get a lead, and it's one of the features I got up on the website now, the Patriots have really struggled um, when they've been down by eight points or more, if the Rams can get an early lead, it'll take the Patriots out of their game plan a little bit more than what they would like. Therefore, I think the Rams could win and maybe even win going away. But I think in a close game, I like the Patriots' chance, big chances because their turnover margin is very good. They don't make a lot of mistakes. The Rams have made more mistakes. Um, I think the key, though, is the running game. The Rams' run defense has not been good most of the year, but, boys, has it been good in the playoffs against Dallas in New Orleans. Uh, that's what the Patriots like to do. Yes, the talk is about Brady and at the ninth Super Bowl, but if Brady has to carry this team – Without the running game, 
they're not going to win this game. It's about the running game here, and the team that can run the football the best and defend it the best is going to win the game. Give me the Patriots in a close one, but uh, I see this uh, possibility of going both ways. I, I got the Patriots as well, and I'll tell you what I'm focused in on, the coin flip. No, not because I'm going to bet on it, Chris, because I think if the Patriots win the toss, like we've seen them do this postseason, which is really not like Belichick, they're going to get the ball first. And the reason is, is because if you go through the history of the Patriots in the Super Bowl, their point production in the first quarter you ready for this, Chris? This, mm-hmm. Yes. This is, is going to be their ninth Super Bowl with Brady and Belichick. Here's their point production in the first quarter of their Super Bowl games. Zero, 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 three. They want to change that desperately. I think if the Pats win the toss, they accept the ball and they try to score early. Yeah, and listen, this year, um, teams that were ahead after the first quarter were 156 and 50 at 75% win percentage, and the Patriots were even higher percentage than that. I think Belichick they, knows this. They, <laughs> no, they, no, they absolutely, he absolutely knows it. And, you know, like he did against Kansas City, getting the ball and working it against that defense, and basically he took the entire first quarter virtually, well, eight, eight, and a half minutes of the first quarter. Uh, and, and, and that's what he wants to do in this game. They don't want to be real. They, their, or, their offense has been, ironically, when it's been a seven-point game either way, either a lead or only trailing by seven or less, they've been one of the top ten offenses in the league. But when they've trailed by eighth or more points, they've graded out like 25th in the league. Mm. They struggle there. And mainly it's because, you know, Pittsburgh played really good run defense against them. But then I'm talking about teams like uh, Tennessee and Detroit and Miami. They jumped on them early and they couldn't come back. Now, I know it's 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 the Patriots. It's the playoffs. It's the ultimate playoff game. It's the Super Bowl. But, you know, getting them to get out of their running game, uh, you know, they would not be as successful. I think they're going to be uh, they're going to run it. They're going to work that horizontal passing game. Here's the other thing. I you know, I know the talk was uh, in the NFC championship game about the call and rightly so it was a bad call and Saints should be in there. But the Saints defense let Jared Goff and the Rams off the hook. Oh, yeah. I thought they had them down. Of course, it was largely due to a home crowd, I know. But I think that you're going to see heavy blitz pressure against Jared Goff. And I think that their turnovers that they've made in in big games um, are going to end up costing them because the Patriots don't beat themselves. I mean, let's call it what it is. The Chiefs are in this game if D. Ford lines up on sides. Uh, because if you look at it, mm-hmm. for all the talk about Brady, he had three picks in that game. Yep. And he had a pick late, too. And what's the narrative of that game if D. Ford's not lining up offside? Oh, man, the Patriots are done. And Brady threw an interception, and the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. You know, that's the narrative if D. Ford doesn't line up offside. So those things still happen. But the Patriots, for the most part, don't make the mental errors. So you got to beat them. The Rams can beat them, but they're going to have to beat them. They're going to have to play a clean game, and if they do, then they've got a good shot. If they don't, then the Patriots are going to win it because they know how to win these close games. Well, Chris, I'm heading down to Atlanta to partake in Super Bowl festivities. Enjoy the game, brother, and I'll talk to you next week. 
And you do the same. Be safe in your travels. Yes, and be sure to follow me on Twitter at Scott's on Air for some bonus Super Bowl coverage. We'll talk to you again next week on Rush the Field, brought to you by Radio Influence. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles. Quick fix on Radio Influence. The Patriots are as healthy as they've been all year. We got Tom Brady, who is 41, um, talking about playing till he's 45. He has four MVPs. Now, Brady last year didn't have Edelman. That was a big deal. Two years ago, he didn't have Gronk. Uh, and this year, Gronk and Edelman are both healthy. That's a big deal. That's a big deal for for Brady. But to me, once again, it's all these different chess matches during the game. You know, what does McVay do with Gronk? Do you put Tlaib on him and eliminate him? Um, We know that Belichick tries to figure out a way to eliminate one thing on the other team. That's going to be tough. The Rams come with a lot. They really do. And you can't just say, I'm going to take away Todd Gurley. Yeah. C.J. Anderson is a bitch, too, and they got receivers everywhere. So there's a lot to eliminate for the for the Patriots and for the Rams. Will you think about it? I think both of their game plan is going to be to stop the running game. If the Patriots run on you, you lose. If you allow the Rams to run on you, you're going to lose. Those are two very good football teams. um, And if you allow them to run on you, you're in big, big trouble. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.